0: When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In crisis talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. ladies and gentlemen. Today I'm interviewing Peter Canterbury who is presently the Managing Director of Triton Minerals and was the former CFO of Sundance Resources. On the 19th of June in 2010 the entire board and a number of the members of the executive team of Sundance Resources died in an air crash in the jungles of the Congo. Peter was thrust into the spotlight as the last man standing from the executive team of Sundance And led the crisis response to the air crash under some of the most extreme circumstances in recent corporate crisis history. In this first episode of a two-part podcast series, we explore the context and the first few days of the crisis response. Talking about his own personal experiences leading that response, how he managed himself and his team through that particular incident, and some of the challenges that they faced both during and post this corporate crisis. So, Peter, can you take us back to Sundance Resources pre 19th of June 2010? Tell us a bit about the business and what was happening at that time.
1: So, uh, Sundance uh, had two um, projects uh, a single iron ore mine rail port uh, project. Uh, it straddled both the Republic of Cameroon and the uh, Republic of Congo. Uh, we uh, were partway through a definitive feasibility study and had Finance that uh, definitive feasibility study, and we are in the process of starting the negotiations with the government on on mining conventions and getting strategic partners in place.
0: Tell us about the team at the time. You know, there was a there was a significant group of people that you brought together as part of this business, and and these were certainly leaders in the mining industry, weren't they?
1: Yeah. Look, we had a, a very strong board and executive team at that point in time. The uh, chairman was Jeff Wedlock, who was a very experienced iron ore former BHP Billiton executive, uh, worked for Portman uh, Mining uh, and uh, Grange Resources. Uh, So he was the chairman. We had Don Lewis, who was a very experienced uh, engineer, uh, worked for Multiplex. uh, Engineering group uh, for a number of years, and and had uh, previously been involved in the Moomba Mineral Sands project in Mozambique. they Had a ex um, Renaissance uh, uh, Goldfields um, uh, executive, John Carr Gregg and we had Craig Oliver, uh, and then Ken Talbot, who was from the Talbot Group, who has uh, was a mining magnate from uh, based in Queensland, and we just recently had. Uh, uh, introduced John, John Jones, who was an uh, uh, engineering uh, construction uh, experience. So, so we had a very experienced team on, on board. We had probably close to 300 people on the ground in, in Cameroon and Republic of Congo and it was a very pivotal stage of uh, our, our project. Well, look, this was a big project. It was a, a, a an iron ore province that was... Uh, had been um, not discovered but we we're, were developing and it would have brought in a number of other deposits as well so it was both the uh, uh, infrastructure uh, and, and mines of a high uh, quality large uh, and iron ore deposit mm. uh, and you know it had similarities to where where the Pilbara was um, many years ago and, and it needed a large investment so it was about a three and a half billion dollar project at that time uh so it was in in a country that had never had uh, mining development uh, to a large scale before and and so needed a powerful board and so former chairman uh, george jones um, who'd stepped off the board for health reasons uh, had built a very strong board it was a very large high profile uh, project and, and so attracted a number of uh, uh, High-profile uh, mining executives mm. uh, from from around uh, uh, from Australia and um, and and very well-respected uh, board uh, within, especially the Perth mining community.
0: And the team had been operating over there for a while, so you had a very good understanding of the risks. What sort of steps did you put in place on the ground, uh, both in Cameroon and Congo, to support your teams over there?
1: Yeah, we we did a risk assessment uh, uh, in. Uh, in early 2008, about what our great greatest risks for the company uh, were going forward, and you know, you have your corporate risks in terms of you know tenure and, and the like. But if you talk about risks for people, and and uh, was really about evacuation of people uh, was and the risk assessment was our greatest risk was people being hurt on on uh, and killed on on roads, mm. and, and so road transport was a uh, very key thing. We also, because of its remoteness, had a, a, um, implemented a strategy where we used a group dynamic to provide both medical and um, paramedic and security uh, services. Uh, and that gave us the capability in country to uh, have first response um, capability to any emergencies, as well as putting the discipline in for journey management, and putting in a a crisis management plan for mm. the site.
0: Jeff Duff was one of the the key the key men on the ground from from then. My team as part of Dynamic. How was how was his relationship with the team on the ground over there?
1: Yeah, Jeff was based uh, principally in in Yonde. Mm. Uh, he was very much the driver of people, the discipline for the drivers coming in and out, and played mm. a played a very important part uh, for the geological exploration group, so mm. uh, to make sure we were managing people going in and out, but also medical services that needed to be for support of that, and also then you know assisting with the, the the logistics process for not just people, but also we had six drilling rigs running, uh, you know, like I said, three hundred people there, so there's fuel issues, you know, drilling consumables, etc. And we were moving everyone in and out of Yonde, and, mm. and had to transport everything we had uh, across there. And so Jeff was an integral part of that, both the um, medical security, uh, journey management, but but really being the conduit within Yonde for uh, otherwise team that had no experience in remote location. Mm. Um, so a lot of people there had no experience in in that type of environment.
0: Yeah, and uh, what an experienced character he was! He was a former naval uh, medic or corman, as they call them, who then went on to join the French Foreign Legion. So you had an American guy who was like the Duff man that you'd expect to see on a on a Homer Simpson's episode, uh, full uh, of energy, full of beans, um, and a great character and a, and a brilliant guy to have, especially on the ground with uh, with some amazing experience, uh, which unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, we we really sorely missed when, when the incident happened. And the 9th of June, 2010, came around, Peter, the can you explain what was happening with the board at that time and, and what they were doing uh, uh, over those few days?
1: Yeah, so the, it was um, a desire by the whole board that they needed to go out and see uh, both um, Cameroon Operation Mabellum and then uh, the uh, Congolese uh, deposit uh, Nabiba is the was the name of the actual deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the board wanted to go there, so all, it was arranged that the board would go there. Uh, but there were also um, but, uh, Don and, and Jeff Wedlock and, and John Cartwright were also then going from there. They were going down to Congo to meet the president. Uh, to because one of the critical elements was there was to make sure we could get a cross border. Agreement with the Congolese to allow their ore all to come out through Cameroon uh, because of a distance is 500 kilometres throughout through Cameroon. It's 1,500 kilometres if it was going out through Congo, or the other option was going through Gabon, which mm. you know all problematic. And we've seen uh, people in various countries. Uh, in, in Africa, like um, Simadu and Guinea, um, mm. not be able to use uh, go across border. So that was a very important part. So they were going to go there as well, as well mm-hmm. as make sure all the board had a had um, an a introduction to the site. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd had Jeff Wedlock had been there before. Don had been there. Jeff, uh, sorry, uh, John Carr greg but uh, uh, Ken hadn't been there. Um, uh, Craig i haven't hadn't been there, John Jones hadn't been there as well. So it was important if we were embarking on this, that they did understand what the lay of the land was.
0: The, the, the team uh, had to fly from uh, the capital of Cameroon, Hyundai, through to airspace over Gabon, over the corner of Gabon, um, and then essentially sort of south, uh, south-east, right, over the Vima Range and then into, into Yangadu. Uh, what challenges did that flight path pose to to the team, and 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 how did it sort of come about uh, that they were together anyway?
1: Yeah, look, uh, it always has a bit of a challenge of uh, of a pretty high profile board going down there. So we didn't really want to make sure um, that it wasn't overly uh, publicised what what we were doing. Just mm. you know, just go down and do that and concentrate that without getting too much press within in the local uh, areas. So we, um, uh, so the flight plan, we engaged a, a charter company who was, had capability um, and a plane suitable f- uh, for that environment. Uh, we, uh, and then planned a route that would enable us to uh, go down um, and have a look at uh, the Avima range and then go down to Yangadu. The, the Yanguru strip was um, a gravel strip, so mm. couldn't, it needed a certain type of plane. Uh, capability of that plane sat in, in, in Congo, and uh, so we were engaged a group who, who had the plane that was suitable. Uh, and we then went through the whole uh, approval with our insurers to, to ensure that that uh, uh, plane was suitable for the um, aspect, and we got coverage on that before it actually took off.
0: Yeah, when you say the assessment, et cetera, there with the insurers, what, uh, you know, for the benefit of people that are often ringing a broker, um, checking in with them about certain trips, et cetera, there, uh, can you explain to them that sort of process that actually happens in this circumstance?
1: So, you know, we had, you know, insurance for our board and, and executives um, that was a you know a global uh, uh, policy for travel and and, and, and so forth. But mm. uh, one specific clause on that is is that uh, any charter flights have to be prior prior approved. So yep. so you um, before they give it they gave their coverage um, certificate, they would uh, require what the uh, make of the plane was, um, mm. what its flying history was. Mm-hmm. How uh, the pilots that were being assigned assigned to it, and um, you know, obviously registration, etc. Uh, that was then supplied to the insurers. The insurers then give a, a certificate of coverage, mm. and uh, and then the charter could uh, take place.
0: It's interesting because that um, that decision process became a real issue throughout the response later on, but. Suffice to say that you'd sought the appropriate um, checks or had the appropriate checks in place. Uh, You'd been operating and had flown with this aircraft provider in the the past, is that correct?
1: Yes, we had used them for a previous flight to Yangadu with the Minister of Mines. Uh,
0: A lot of these things were really challenged when you got into the main response because there was a lot of speculation initially about why a particular provider who was supposedly blacklisted from the EU, which, which really didn't mean a great deal considering that they weren't flying into the EU, uh, and other sort of issues started to arise from that. Did, did the insurers at any stage identify those as issues or is it pretty well a straightforward process? You, you sought that approval, you got the coverage, uh, and away they went. Uh,
1: insurers didn't really have any other than just make sure we had the the requirements that they had were met um it was pretty much a procedural uh, element and uh, and so there were no there were no red flags uh, you know mm. the comment about the uh, banned EU pretty much 90% of the uh, all African airlines are banned into the EU because they don't pay the cost to do to that it's a prohibitive cost and they don't fly to the EU
0: the big question that does exist, though, is why they were all still put on that plane, or why they all chose to fly together.
1: Well, oh, look, uh, it was not; a, it was a decision that the board made. I mean, uh, you know, the the main organisers of this was, see, um, Don and um, John Carr, Greg is the company secretary and mm. uh, uh, corporate counsel. Uh, so he uh, and Dunning in in Conjunction with the chairman about what the schedule was, and Mm. it was a pretty tight schedule, and also the number of assets that are available during that time Mm. uh, to allow flying during daylight hours, which is uh, important. And then, uh, so the decision was based based on uh, availability and desire of the board to run to that schedule uh, that um, they all. Uh, agreed that it was that was the appropriate um, uh, method and you know in hindsight you can say yeah look it it, it wasn't um, you know there was it it was an unex- you know it was a risk uh, mm-hmm. but it was that was uh, prepared to uh, be taken by that board mm-hmm. um, and and to be quite honest the um, insurers it had raised no, raised no query uh, in relation to that, mm. and uh, it it had been done many times in other other groups because of in in these African regions, it's very hard to get um, assets that would be suitable to do that. So it was Absolutely. either uh, do that or don't do it.
0: Rolling forward to uh, to that nineteenth of June, Peter, what was what was the first call that you'd received? that
1: day? Yeah, look, it was, um, I got a call um, about 3.30 in the afternoon uh, to say from uh, Rob Longley, who was on on site at Yangadu waiting for them to arrive. He was the general manager of geology uh, and had run the whole program on site um, from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he rang me and said, look, they hadn't arrived. Um, uh, not sure, you know, if they left on time, um, you know, had communication from Jeff that they were ready to go, but um, but had he didn't get confirmation they'd left. So mm-hmm. uh, he was still running around with that. So I said, look, let's leave it give it a uh, half an hour if you don't hear anything then we'll uh, give me a call and we'll, uh, then we'll decide to uh, start um, uh, making some arrangements to uh, how we how we do it so he left it for another half hour um, we uh, and then he called back said no uh, no contact um, uh, we then because we had a cross management plan and that cross management plan had Uh, dynamic and so my my phone call was to yourselves um to that we had a potential issue uh we then within an hour of that um went into the office uh and created into the boardroom uh, of our office and um and started a crisis management center and and then reached out to the Various people um, who we needed to help support that. So we had both, you know, dynamic assets and that, but we also had a um, public relations um, um, uh, group that could bring in and deal with any, you know, if there's any uh, press leaks, and and we can go through that a little bit later. But there was uh, issues that we had to deal with, uh, and then you know, from that, the whole crisis management centre was was formed, and so. The advantage with the dynamic was that, you know, we had people on the ground in in Perth, um, good good aviation knowledge so we could get assets to help to look for the plane. Mm-hmm. and um, But also you had the people on site who were who were ex-French um, uh, Foreign Legion who would be able to assist in any, any work on that ground, both from a security perspective but also from a um, uh, medical side.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This this was one of the probably the 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 most dramatic, but equally one of the most challenging incidents that we'd been involved in for a number of different reasons. Notwithstanding the fact that that one of our own was actually on the on the uh, aircraft in Jeff yeah. Duff. Um, so yeah, remember, I remember receiving that first call, and it was from Anthony Morehouse, who was yeah. a business partner and our CEO. Uh, and my first question for him was, was who who was on the plane? And when he started rattling off the names of the people that were involved, I knew pretty well straight away that this would be uh, a, a very high potential issue, and and especially given the the, the caliber of people that were involved, um, and and the team that were, were as we found to be pretty shortly thereafter uh, missing. What was your first thought? So when you know you've heard this first call you you've had that half an hour to 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 pause and think what's going through your mind at that point in time peter
1: uh, look i my given given i'd been to into camera and, and, and to site a number of times um, it's a difficult train, and and it was um, and the other thing is that it, it is prone to having fog and uh, conditions, and whether there was any weather conditions that forced them to, you know, land somewhere else or, or turn back. Uh, so I was um, view that well, okay, it's a it's a case of a uh, you know a missing plane that. Um, Hasn't got to sight, but you know, at the back of your mind there's always the you know you think the worst, but then you you hope for the best, and uh, and so you've got to plan for the worst, and and so we call that you know the crisis management uh, Mm centre, and to to help finding the the plane. So it was more about where could they be.
0: I recall there were sort of four broad scenarios. One was, as you said, that they're late arriving, or they lost they'd been lost for whatever reason uh, another one was that they were, there was a crash and and the variations on that were that they were crashed and deceased uh, crashed and still alive or a potential mixture uh, another option was that they were had been surreptitiously taken um, so something had happened and they'd been for whatever reason you know kidnapped or otherwise either way all of those options pointed to the fact that we needed to find them can you, can you remember what that first objective was when we when we had that first catch-up call the first crisis management center call uh, that you'd set and and we we agreed to work from from then on in
1: yeah it was really about what assets could we then get to help find mm-hmm. the the um uh find the plane the issue is that the most likely assets that are going to be uh, useful in in such a a large area but Mm. also very dense in terms of uh, forest and and anyone who saw the plane crash site or or the like uh, will will recognise very quickly that it's a very difficult terrain to to see much because Mm. it has a big canopy and things can disappear into that canopy. As we found out, so helicopter assets were obviously going to be the the best asset uh, in terms of being after Seymour. Um, they bring up, um, their challenges because we, you know, we we had used helicopters, and our assessment was they are actually much more of a difficult asset to manage, both in terms of flight distance and time, and. and the, and, and the likes of what what we ha- where we had to do is get a combination of uh, potentially fixed wing and and help, help ELOs and it's really the first thing was really identify assets of how we could um, one target a, a search area, so mm-hmm. you know understanding where the likely was, and that's where Rob had a very good knowledge um, of that because uh, there was a specific plan there to actually go via a VMA. It mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, in the uh, initial flight plan um, deliberately because we didn't want people to highlight that area. It was It was modified to make sure that that was a, that was a change, it was logged, the, the pilots knew what they were, where they were going, but it mm. didn't need to be highlighted um, uh, to it early. Um, and so, so we knew roughly where it was going, so how to target uh, there in terms of to search, it was search and rescue, it was the main focus at that point in time. But it was about having consideration when, how, when do we tell people, you know. Uh, and yep. so that became very relevant very quickly um, with, uh, and this is where media monitoring of, of, of the airways, we heard there was some report out of London that there was um, in, uh, a plane missing. And so we... Um, we then had to take steps to put together uh, a um, group of people to go around and, and notify the families, and that was coordinated with both yeah. the, the police and, and individual executives from from the, from the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, executed that about, I think, about one o'clock in the, the following morning,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and notified all the families uh, simultaneously.
0: And from memory i think we were we initiated that about an hour in where we where we could we did that in person where we couldn't we did it via phone and um and where we couldn't do it in person we were we would endeavor to have someone with the relative or family member either a friend or otherwise whom we could identify in order to have some support network around them to initiate that and remembering by this stage I think we we're late in uh, on on Saturday night the 19th of June um, so it was certainly a shock for some of the people particularly East Coast Australia the time zone differences here meant that we we're doing that quite late at night yeah
1: yeah even Perth we actually it was one o'clock in the morning not a good time to ever have to knock on someone's door so no
0: from there an international search and rescue effort was mounted from from the Cameroon side the Number of aircraft were were brought to bear on that first day, or what was left of that first day, over in over in Cameroon. What were some of the challenges that you saw in that initial phase?
1: Yeah, it, yeah, it look, uh, we had local country uh, people. One one of our um, country people was quite well connected with the military, and in um, in Cameroon, there was offer of assets there to to assist, but. In the same time, we were um, utilising um, some uh, French um, military um, helicopters that, that are based in Gabon um, just uh, as a capability. So one of the risks that we had was that, you know, and, and the Congolese also wanted to uh, participate, but mm. uh, understanding if you had, you know, six helicopters and six aircraft, the risk in that sort of terrain that one of them crashes into another or there's, you know, an uncontrolled event Mm. in that was quite a high risk. So we had uh, an aviation expert uh, bought into when we were tracking the um, flight paths of various um, assets and, and trying to make sure that we managed the the, especially the Cameroon government in, in military to, to say, well, look, we don't need all those uh, these planes. What we need is is a coordinated approach to go through it. And there was a lot of misinformation going, and we would heard reports of a, you know, someone was saying a, there was a fire and in in, in in near Jum, and uh, and from our uh, knowledge of the flight path, there that, that was no chance that that was. You know, unless there was a deviation, that was quite a a long way uh, from the path. And so it was unlikely to be correct. And so we entrusted both the um, people on the ground who had an intimate knowledge of where uh, that was to guide that. But we really was a deployment of the assets, um, either helicopters or or fixed wing uh, planes, to... Assist in that search and and rescue.
0: In order to enable that type of operation to occur, what was happening happening diplomatically?
1: yeah So look, we notified um, uh, DFAT, and one of the advantages, I mean, dynamic were uh, very uh, useful in in the relationships with military assets. But our former country manager in in Cameroon, a uh, gentleman called uh, Brendan Augustine, mm-hmm. was a former um, DFAT. Uh, and He was uh, able to make um, some calls for us very quickly and, and got a high high profile within there. And, and ultimately, DFAT did a um, was a fantastic resource for mm. us because they'd had experience in assisting plane crashes in in other com- in difficult trains such as BNG. and mm. uh, so they were provided both consul assistance uh, but also assets for things such as um, uh, coroners and and, uh, and relationships with um, uh, the government to try and uh, uh, assist this process. And, and, and remember, you have, um, you know, we were involving two countries. The plane took off in in Cameroon. It actually ultimately crashed in the uh, Republic of Congo. So you have governments who are very... Proud of their um, reputation, and would, uh, and so we had to make sure we didn't uh, uh, step on any toes in terms of that process, and so it became quite challenging uh, how you worked that through with from a logistical perspective as well.
0: And the high commissioner at that stage was was based in Niger. Is that correct?
1: No, he was in uh, Nigeria. Nigeria, but yeah, and but. um Ian McConville hadn't actually presented his papers to the Cameroonian president or the Congolese president. In fact, he was going to go on the plane when it got back from Yonde uh, yep. down to um, Brazzaville to present his papers at, the, at there. So he was had arrived in Yonde and was going to wait for the plane. So mm. um, so he we did have someone on the ground. And he was um, able to assist with the the response um, uh, as well.
0: Yeah, look, we I remember, remember Ian becoming involved. it became a bit of a critical point for us in in coordination of efforts, particularly from the Cameroon. and uh, we had a, a good a great foot on the ground and an amazing presence in Rob Longley, who was coordinating really as the emergency response team lead in, in country, but he was also, Based quite remotely so um, didn't have any visibility on what the departures were happening and like you said there's a number there are a number of different assets that were in the air at any one point in time uh, which unfortunately we didn't have any great oversight on uh, as part of that initial sort of search and response phase but once Ian became involved and once we got some more people in behind them at uh, at uh, Hyundai we were able to start to get a bit more control over the search patterns that they were deploying and and also some of the results. So we'd initiated uh, an international search and rescue effort. We'd is- initiated the diplomatic ties. Uh, media had started by this stage. How did the media first hear about the incident and and when was that from memory?
1: Look, There was a report out of, um, of London that a plane had crashed. Um, there was starting to be some... Queries about that. So that occurred. You know, that was during um, Sunday. um, Effectively, Uh, we fortunately we then told the family. It was then, you know, uh, in in the press. But uh, fortunately, all the families were told before any press reports uh, come come out. um, And that was where the media monitoring was quite um, uh, important. Mm -hmm. We um, at that point. decided and then we had a number of issues that we had to go through, but um, that we then would uh, be get on the front foot and we would do a press conference once we, um, because of these people were quite, especially in Perth were quite high, high, high profile people.
0: Certainly. And, and from memory, we, we discussed that strategy on arrival on the, on the Sunday, uh, I had to fly across from Melbourne. I was on a flight, which had, I think the whole AFL commission, and the whole executive team of the AFL on the one flight, interestingly enough, uh, arrived at the other end. And we, we went into the initial update and then followed up with some stakeholder planning at that stage with, uh, with the team from the PR side and also from the legal side and yourself. What did you see was the critical point? You made one before about families first, but what was the, the critical points and the critical stakeholders that we needed to start to think about as part of the ongoing efforts?
1: Yeah, look, it, it it becomes a quite a complex issue because I mean, ultimately, where it was is that um, the whole board um, and the company secretary were on that plane, um, and I was the most senior person sitting out outside of that, and 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 so we had to deal family side of things, the staff, you know, mm-hmm. who all had you know relationships with these people, and those staff were were not only, you know, uh, in Australia, but in Cameroon and Congo, mm. uh, very cultural differences between the two and just saying, that, so make sure we had a communication uh, process. We need to get a psychologist on on board to make sure that we could monitor people to ensure that their their welfare, um, both the families, but also their staff, um, that we didn't, you know, damage, you know, the people we could deal with, the... Uh, issues of people's reaction, because and you know people react at different times, and that's mm. very um, something you you learnt a lot more about from, through that process is that people react in different times to different events, and and the point the point where they tip is is different for every every person. So so we Absolutely. needed that resource in, and then we needed the legal advice to deal with. We had a uh, uh, company that in fact we had no directors. Um, and uh, how do you deal with the, uh, our banks? How do you deal with your uh, all your contractors? How do you deal with the regulators? So we're a listed company, um, so have to deal with ASX and ASIC. Um, and and as it turns out, uh, what's um, we this isn't dealt with properly under the corporations law mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what you do with uh, without it uh, when you have no directors of the company. Mm. Um, and so it was a very you know multi-pronged um uh, issue so we had to deal with you know press on you know uh, people aren't being interested families which you know is the paramount our staff shareholders and and regulators um and then deal with the governments which we held assets in you know ha- assets in their countries
0: and uh, and all of these were in in parallel and, and really how did the news break was it broken through a leak at that um, early stage or how did it sort of get out do you think
1: um, well look I think there was uh, there was reports there was um, and then you know we then we managed it so PPR were a group who were dealing with that they mm. um, uh, managed and and, and Informed the marketplace in terms of the you know the news uh, organisations. The problem was you know seven hours difference between Perth and um, Cameroon, mm. uh, so the time when activities are happening, um, and you've only got daylight hours while well, well, so you could be doing searching. And, mm. and so therefore there was a lot of time there, whereas was where was nothing really happening. So it was merely managing that from a communications perspective to say, what are we doing? When are we doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, it also coincided with the um, uh, the World Soccer Cup. Uh, so we had a number of news uh, agencies that had um, uh, people sitting in South Africa, um, even a couple of them sent people up to Cameroon to our offices just to find the story. And so, so you know, you had to deal with, multiple areas, and so we needed to have specialists in each area mm. to deal with that from a first, a first point of call.
0: Roll forward uh, another day, we get a number of different assets in the air. Um, we didn't have a great deal of control over that, so on that Monday, we we uh, took the decision there to deploy two helicopters to the Avima range where we thought was probably the most likely that an incident could have occurred given the terrain analysis that's been performed by Rob and his team and by the Crisis Management Centre as well. What were your thoughts that um, leading up to that day and, you know, by that stage we sort of had really 24-hour operations in place. Had you had much sleep, how was your welfare and your own personal sort of wellbeing at that stage two days in?
1: Uh, look, we set up uh, um, the, the major pe- uh, Exco members that were in, in Perth sat and were part of that At crisis centre. We did a, a shift pattern, um, but um, I'd have to say not a huge amount of sleep. And and really it was about, you know, going home, getting a shower, to have a couple of hours sleep and then come back. And then, mm-hmm. um, But, you know, ultimately that's not the major um issue, there was something much more important that we needed to do at that point in time.
0: Speaking to you, though, on that, on that, on that point, at this stage, you were, didn't know the well-being or welfare of a number of your friends, um, a number of your colleagues. Uh, you were thrust into that position of, of leading that, that response, and you had the weight of the whole business and the whole stakeholders, really, on your shoulders. How did you find that sort of pressure at that point in time, especially in those early days of the response?
1: Well, look, it was very fortunate. I mean, I, the two the two next people I rang were um, Michael Blackiston, who was a mm. uh, lawyer in in Perth, who was was uh, familiar with that. He was he worked on our um, in in country there mm. uh, on our mining convention that we're trying to work through, uh, and and he knew and uh, very much about this. I rang um, uh, George Jones, who was the the chairman, when I joined the mm. company, um, stepped down. Um, and then we um, spoke to Adam Rankin Wilson, who was the uh, from Azure Capital, um, who was the party that actually bended in the, the project in the first place in mm. 2006 into um, into Sundance. Mm. Um, so so we were able to get Michael deal with a lot of the uh, the legal issues and mm. uh, uh, George um, did a lot of work on the public relations yep. uh, and so that freed me to be a bit more and um, still need to get across all those issues but I could concentrate more on the family and, mm. and, and response uh, side of things um, and we did a uh, so that for me that was for quite a good resource and then Look, from a decision point about you having to make decisions, then um, Adam Rankin-Wilson made a, a suggestion to me. He said, look, you don't have to use it, but, you know, there's the former the head of the SAS in Perth was uh, James McMahon. Um, he said, look, just let him come in and, and to a few of the meetings. He's not going to say anything, but if you need anything. And so I spoke to James about it. Mm. And, he, and he said, look, oh, I'm there as to support. So he was there as support and didn't really say much other than reinforced what I was doing and, and was there to discuss if I needed to, you know, do it. So, look, it was it was people there to help and, and we also had, you know, critical components, guys yeah. who were there from a, a psych and and so there were enough people around to be of support mm. um, but you also draw on a, a fair bit of inner strength at that point in
0: time. You certainly did and and seeing that, particularly when we had to front... The cameras on on really that Monday uh, was that something you'd ever experienced before you know, walking into a into a press conference or a press gang and and having to front up in that sort of way before.
1: No, I'd never really done that before. I mean, you know, obviously we go do the investor type of in front and going through the various press, but, the, but that was for you know um, talking about your company. Um, mm. This mm. was much of a media frenzy in, in regarding to wanting to know something and um and speculate effectively
0: yeah i remember the uh, uh we we went through a pretty elaborate plan to enter the building and and work through downstairs at the dutton hotel over in perth and um and end up we walked straight past all of them <laughs> and had to walk out a yeah. little backside room and then go and compose ourselves after seeing what we're up against and then walk back in and present at the appropriate time. It was uh, one of those sort of moments a bit bit like an out-of-body sort of moment where, where you realize what was, what was the sort of extent of what been going on. And remember prior to that, we were, we were huddled in a crisis management room essentially for 24 hours, 36 hours prior to that. Yeah. So, so realizing the exposure that it's a, it gleaned and the attention that it had garnered um really sort of you know came home at that stage for me anyway that day we did the press conference we rolled back uh, we took a deep breath we then looked at what was the next phase really what was what was the sort of preps that we made that day and then and then how that lead into the night when we when we found them
1: yeah look it was um obviously we um There was a lot of preparations from a for the Monday, a lot of things had to be in place. So the Mm. company went into uh, um, uh, trading holds uh, and and we had to then, and we then went into a suspension following that. But um, we then had to talk to the regulators, uh, deal with um, those things and notify the various parties. Mm. Um, And and so it got a new, you know, like the whole. you know the plan was then to utilize those assets went during the daylight hours to maximum ability in a hope of, uh, of finding them uh, very very quickly mm. um, but then the whole press started taking over and getting uh, and then that started building a momentum that was it was quite distractful and mm. also damaging to families. so there was a real imperative that we needed to move fairly quickly and to to um, to to help the families to you know find their their members and so um, Mm -hmm. you know that was a very critical part of it and and um, you know and even the comments that you know came is that you know um, even when they were found to be deceased um, it was that you know we need you to get those um, their um, uh, remains out of the country and back home to us. Um, and, mm. and that was a very critical element. So the planning was really about search, rescue, and, and if there was not a great result, then, um, uh, then a recovery um, basis. And, and uh, so it was important that um, during that Monday that we started, you know, we had some success in terms of locating where that plane was.
0: The fear that we have in those circumstances in most search and rescue instances, though, is that you may never find them at all given the terrain and given the locations. Had that crossed your mind and, and what was the the thoughts that that presented to you or, or the potential issues that that would present to, to you and also to the families?
1: Oh, Look, it, it had been brought up by the families, um, mm. but um, I hadn't ever really thought of that in my own. Mm. I had, you know... You know I had great confidence that we had a had a right a good response team that would knew the terrain where it was, had enough assets sitting in place and and some very um, you know switched on people who um, could de-risk that search uh, process
2: mm-hmm.
1: and what we needed to do is make sure we weren't distracted by outside um, items to to uh, undertake that search
0: and rescue and look the stakeholder strategy was was critical to enabling that because it enabled the search and rescue efforts to continue on um, with as minimal distractions as possible whilst um, managing the issues that had started to had started to emerge post that press conference and um, one of those issues were obviously around why they were all on the plane together and um, and then also some issues started to emerge about the the type and nature of the advice that had been given to to you by by dynamic or my team at the time about taking that flight that was a that was a pretty challenging time for for us in particular because it really brought into question the type of advice that we would give as a risk management business
1: it's interesting because that was a very much an external issue rather than an mm. internal issue yep. um, and we got the notification that that was, you know, there was some information flying around that was not not at all accurate, and and mm-hmm. and really it was, uh, you know, we didn't have an issue with, um, you know, we uh, the decision very clearly the decision on what asset was done was based on ours we um, and we used a process with our insurers, uh, so. To us, there was no real issue, so mm. it was more about dealing it from a public perce- uh, per, from, from a perception. And look, there are a whole lot of people. I mean, we got run by you know ambulance chasers out of London saying you know you need to engage us, you know, and and um, and and so um, and you know had someone from Channel Nine wanting us or, or one of the papers uh, ring us to, to say that we they wanted us to take us down down there and and. And you need to do that straight away. Mm. Um, and as literally, you know, the external um, noise on that was, you know, it was a distraction. But to us, we were very clear on, you yeah. know, what the project was. We had a plan in place. We weren't distracted by that. But, you know, we just needed someone to deal with those external issues and just hose them down because, they, you know, there was no there was no air in that. there. Was, it was just someone um, trying to beat up a story. And and so uh, it was important that we closed it down and, and mm. George did a great job with PPR on, on mm. dealing with the media on that. But um, unfortunately, it doesn't, um, um, you know, there's collateral damage that occurs on the, on the way. And so we just, it was something we had to deal with. It was not um, a focus, but...
0: George Jones was critical in in keeping that that uh, that focus on on the search and rescue and particularly on the family support when we when we went into that third day of the of the search and rescue we'd managed to put these two aircraft onto the target um, and we and we managed to identify the crash site what was the immediate reaction for you once we'd found them
1: ah oh, it was um you know, it was deeply, um, emotional that, you know, and, and not, and wasn't, um, you not worrying about yourself, but, you know, just, you know, having, um, the impact on the families that, you know, were just losing loved ones at that point in time. And, um, the sorrow that had that this, this had occurred to, to them who, you know, and, you know, the death of, um, number of you know they're work colleagues but they're also friends
0: that concludes episode one part one the sundance resources air crash in next week's episode we talk through the repatriation of the members back to their families the challenges that the team faced in managing that extrication in such difficult and remote terrain and the wider issues around family, media, and other stakeholders. Lastly, we'll talk about the longer-term impacts that this incident had on all people involved.